And you, you will paint this. What? A fresco. Our Lord's final night with the apostles before death came. Your Excellency, um, I don't know how to work in fresco. Then you will learn. They didn't have time in our packed schedule to do all 27 stages, The Last Supper, practically on that wall. So what they actually did in production were three or four versions of it. His perfectionism, the constantly starting again. And there's this lovely moment that with The Last Supper that goes to show his, his perfectionism, I think, that he stands there and there's this error that he sees there that no one else has seen. And everyone's like, no one will notice that. And he's like, but I will notice. But however much you strive for it, can you achieve perfection in art? This is episode five of Leonardo, the official podcast, and I'm your host, Angelica Bell. This time, we'll be looking into the wider themes of episode five of Leonardo the Drama, where we witness da Vinci creating what will become his most renowned work for centuries, The Last Supper. It will feel as if we are in the room with Jesus, as he ate his final meal before the crucifixion. I will make disciples of us all. It's an emotional episode, and as a viewer, what we feel is heightened by the music that accompanies it. So we've gone to the source of how you create that with composer John Paisano. I got brought in so early that I was able to kind of have the luxury of theme development. When you're portraying Leonardo da Vinci and showing his artwork on screen, authenticity is key. Show creators Steve Thompson and Frank Spotnitz tell us what lengths they went to to get the art right by finding a team of artists to recreate Leonardo's sketches, drawings, sculptures and paintings. Not only were they creating da Vinci's, they were creating several other prototype da Vinci's on the way. You want to learn something. I mean, this is an entertainment, but you want to see, like, well, how did he do it? Why was it such a work of genius for the time? And that means you've got to really show it visually. As the murder mystery drama of Leonardo escalates, we'll investigate the real-life relationship between da Vinci and his patrons, who paid him to do work that often would remain incomplete. He was really bad at finishing work, and it's quite interesting because of all the um, well-known Renaissance artists, he is really one of the more nightmarish ones to work with. Plus, I speak to Freddie Highmore about The Last Supper and perfectionism. It was like magical to step onto this set in this space and think, wow, that is The Last Supper, and, uh, and see at least in your head in that moment that you're genuinely standing in front of it. Looking now, though, at what was real and what wasn't in the drama. While some artistic licence has been taken with a few elements of the story for entertainment's sake, the facts around the creation of The Last Supper are true. On a fresco, the plaster is damp, which means we can only paint a small section each day before the work has to be completed and the plaster dry. Just so. Well, this is a new type of fresco, one that will allow us more time. The production went into painstaking lengths to recreate da Vinci's artwork, using the exact techniques to reproduce Leonardo's masterpiece, which after all, remains a UNESCO World Heritage Site at the Church of Santa Maria della Grazia in Milan. It's only a short walk from here. 
It's a responsibility that the co-creators and writers of Leonardo, Steve Thompson and Frank Spotnitz, did not take lightly. Let's begin there with Steve and the sensitivities in reproducing such a body of famous artwork. I mean, how do you even find artists who can do that? Well, I think they're the stars, actually, of the show. I mean, you know, Aidan and Matilda Fantastic too, of course, but I think it's important at this moment to talk about those artists because not only were they creating Da Vinci's, they were creating several other prototype Da Vinci's on the way. So episode one, the critical piece of art is the baptism of Christ, which he's painting. And our art department not only created a finished baptism of Christ, they had to create four or five other versions so we could see it on its route to being finished. And I thought it was gasp making. I can't think of any other way of putting it, the, the, the art that they created for us, because there's so much of it. They were reproducing his notebooks. They were reproducing, you know, all the stuff that was pouring out of his mind. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the extraordinary things about the show, actually. How many sketches have you made? It's not ready yet. Nothing you ever do is ready. No, no, no. I have to give huge credit to our lead director, Dan Percival, who was obsessive about getting the art right and getting the process of making yeah, the art absolutely. right. And, and that was one of the things Steve and I really felt was important was you want to learn something. I mean, this is an entertainment, but you want to see like, well, how did he do it? Why was it such a work of genius for the time? And that means you've got to really show it visually. And Dan was really difficult with them on insisting, you know, to get it all right. And they did find this amazing studio, and, and Dan, I'm sure, can tell you more about this, where artists restore works of art from this period with the same techniques that were used then. And so those same artists were used on this show to create the work that you see. And we did it, you know, step by step as accurately as we could. And I believe it's part of the licensing agreement in order to use Leonardo's artworks, we have to show them accurately in their finished state each time. So everything you see, you know, is, is correct. It's interesting that some things like the Ginevra da Vinci painting where the, the hands were sawn off, we don't actually know what they look like. So we had to imagine that or the portrait of Caterina that he paints, which of course is destroyed in the end, but that never existed. So that had to be a painting that was, credibly, you know, done by Leonardo. So that was, I think, one of the biggest challenges of the show was getting the art right, because the art is such an important part of the show. And if you didn't believe in that art, nothing else would have worked. I don't want to show that to him, are you? Why not? What's wrong with it? It's crude. The proportions are all wrong. Maestro expects better from a first apprentice. Looking at The Last Supper, which is being produced on a wall, how long does something like that take to make, even as a set? Oh, boy. For me, personally, The Last Supper has been like the, the, the torture of the show for me, <laughs> I have to say, be, because they didn't have time in our packed schedule to do all 27 stages of The Last Supper practically on that wall. So what they actually did in production were three or four versions of it. And so what you see in the finished show is me and the visual effects team and our editor. And we, with VFX, we've had to build the sequence correctly to show the progression of that painting to, to its final state. I'm sorry, Your Lordship, I haven't completed the fresco yet. I made an error. 
if I'm to fix it, it could take weeks. <laughs> ha! Is that all? Do you know how many times great men fail before they succeed? As everyone knows, the Last Supper that you would go to see in Milan today, access is strictly prohibited because it's peeling and it's badly damaged. So what you see there is the perfect version of the painting, which the world doesn't really know what it looks like. So we licensed a copy of Leonardo's painting that was done when it was still in a pristine state. And that's what you see is the, you know, our licensed version of the copy of Leonardo's fresco that no longer exists. You said you wanted to create a masterpiece and look, a look. masterpiece. I have news for you, Leonardo. This paint will decay. Your masterpiece will not survive. So much for immortality. But I am curious, could these da Vinci reproduction artworks elicit an emotional response working around them on set? Uh, well, I, I think I have to say probably not, uh, not what you'd expect because when you see them in person, our copies, they don't necessarily look all that convincing. They look convincing on film. Uh, but I think honestly, when you're working with them on the soundstage or on the location, they're just like technical props. But I think the other thing that was interesting was, you know, we had to cast Ginevra da Vinci and we had to cast Lisa Giacondo. So we had to find actresses who looked close enough to the subjects that Leonardo painted that you we're literally intercutting the painted image and these young women's faces and you you accept that they're the same person and the same costume and the same hairstyle right that's quite a quite a challenge to find the right actress who can do the role convincingly and also looks pretty close to the person that Leonardo painted he was having some trouble capturing my image <laughs> he had the same problem with me but it does strike me, you know, what Steve was talking about, the baptism of Christ. I just love in the first episode when you see the model standing in front yeah. of the studio and, and oh, that's how they did it. Yeah. To me, that, that was the fun of what, oh, that's, oh, I see. They drew on pieces of paper and then they punched holes and then they put it against the wall and they did ash. Higher. I didn't know any of that stuff, you know, before yeah. the show started. So I, I really enjoyed learning. Straight. I agree. Seeing the mechanics of it, seeing them put the portrait together, seeing them choose the model, create the cartoons, that's really exciting. I want to take a moment now to go back to the point that Frank Spotnitz was making about what has survived today of Leonardo's The Last Supper. Well, very little of it. The public can visit the museum dedicated to it in Milan, the Cenacolo Vinciano, which incorporates the Dominican convent of Santa Maria della Grazie, where the mural painting remains on the wall of the friar's dining room, the refectory. Will you find another place for these friars to eat? Of course. As we hear in episode five of the drama, Leonardo shunned traditional fresco painting techniques to go his own way, painting on a dry wall rather than wet plaster, so he had more time to make changes as he worked. This method not only allows us to work more carefully, but it ensures that the fresco retains its true colors for longer. Sounds excellent. Inspired. It is. And what is this method? So we, we apply our special kind of tempera onto a drywall, and after it dries, 
we're able to paint another layer, and another, and another. We can do this maybe five or six times. This is something we couldn't do with the traditional fresco. But The Last Supper started to deteriorate a few years after it was finished at the end of the 15th century, and its falling flakes of paint have been well documented. The humidity alone in the room caused much damage. That room is now a climate-controlled space with strict limits on visitors to minimise further damage from even dust particles. The refectory at the Santa Maria della Grazie church has seen a lot over the years. It's been badly flooded, used as a stable, and despite being protected by hundreds of sandbags and scaffolding, in August 1943, the Last Supper narrowly avoided being completely destroyed when the convent suffered bomb damage during World War II. There are records of nine restoration attempts since the 1700s, with some debate over how far these disfigured the original, but the first modern revisions took place between 1903 and 1908. Further restorations were made after the Second World War and the most recent spanned 20 years from 1979 to 1999. But none of this is without controversy, especially concerning how little of Leonardo's original work remains. As so much of it has now been repainted and replaced, does that mean it's still, strictly speaking, a work of art by da Vinci? Stop. Everyone stop. It's wrong. What's wrong? The ceiling is too low. But it's the ceiling you drew. I, I, I know I drew it, but I drew it wrong. It's too low. If the apostles were to stand, they'd bump their heads. Leonardo, the ceiling may be too low, but it's a painting. None of them will stand. It's, it looks fine. Is that what you think we're here to do? Make things look fine? Make them look adequate? Integrity in art is something that dominated Leonardo's thoughts, but he couldn't work for free. He was employed and paid by patrons to create art that they wanted, which didn't always go to plan. As we see in episode 5, all that time spent working for Sforza on what was to be an enormous bronze sculptor of a horse. That preparation work really did happen. The drawings exist, but the sculpture itself does not. Historian and author Catherine Fletcher is back to explain da Vinci's complicated relationship with his employers. I've been commissioned by Amerigo de Benci, de Penta's daughter. One client doesn't make an artist, Leonardo. Let's discuss um, the notion of patrons, patronage to the arts. When did that start? I mean, I guess patronage goes back way, way to the point where anybody had spare money and they decided they were going to spend it on artwork. But it's really, really important in the Florentine Renaissance and in Renaissance Italy more generally, first of all, because in Florence, you end up with a lot of very wealthy merchants with money to spend. They have an incentive to spend it on religious art, partly because participation in banking at this time, lending money at interest is regarded as a religious sin in Christianity. So actually these days, I mean, it's still in Islam, you might know today, they um, there's still a prohibition on lending money at interest, so special kind of bank account arrangements. So Christians also have this issue going back 500 years. So one of the things that Christian bankers could do to sort of try and redeem themselves a bit in these circumstances was to commission fabulous art for their local church. A commission from Amerigo de Benci is one thing, but your career will go nowhere without the church. 
You also have this political situation in Italy where it's divided into lots and lots of different small states, each with their own ruler. And these rulers are competing to have the most fabulous, glamorous court that they possibly can. So um, the, in, in these circumstances, they're also competing to bring in the best artists to get their rooms um, decorated in the most wonderful way. And that, again, is a source of, of patronage for Leonardo. He works for a number of different Italian princes. Do you know who I am? Yes, Your Grace, Ludovico Sforza. Come and paint for me in Milan. I'll double your salary and give you your own studio. And the relationship between artist and money provider can be quite testy, as we know, because he didn't finish a lot of his works, which must be infuriating if you want to have this masterpiece from Leonardo and he doesn't finish it. He was really bad at finishing work. And it's quite interesting because of all the um, well-known Renaissance artists, he is really one of the more nightmarish ones to work with. So if you take like Raphael has a really efficient workshop team. Titian is this sort of perfect gentleman who has great manners and gets on extremely well with all his royal clients. And Leonardo is just, you know, oh, really not so smooth. He's the person who um, you hire in to do a job. He doesn't get it finished. He's doing all these experimental techniques, which mean like with the Last Supper, the fresco um, goes wrong quite quickly. It is almost in poor condition and having to be restored. He's a tough person to work with, but then he's really, really good. So he keeps being asked back. And this is the, the problem for patrons is deciding, do I want to take the risk of working with this guy? Is he that good? Or do I just think, oh, no, I'll get somebody who's you know perhaps a bit less brilliant, but safer <laughs> as a kind of option? It's brilliant. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's a chaotic mess. I overreached. I attempted to cram too many ideas into a single work. I'm still deciding whether to finish it. So did he have a bad reputation then? I think it became apparent after a while that you took a risk when you were hiring Leonardo, that you might get fabulous work, but he wasn't terribly good at delivering. So there's a whole period when he basically decides what he wants to do is to study maths. And he spends all this time not particularly delivering his projects and um, working on mathematical theory. And you can just imagine if you're a client hoping that what he's going to do is to deliver some nice portraits of your family. That must be quite frustrating. I would be honoured to complete this work. Do you think it was a flaw in his character why he couldn't get on with his patrons or, or realise, you know, if someone's paying you, you've got to deliver? You know, there must be something in your, in your framework to think, nah, do you know what, I've got something else to do, I'll leave that, and not be afraid of the consequences. It's partly a flaw in his character, but I think it's also partly a strength of his character because what Leonardo wants to do is to be curious and to observe and to stop and think and investigate all the time. And that's part of the strength of his work. I mean, both the scientific work in the notebooks, but also the art is kind of the detail, the level of observation that goes into it. And I think you can't, you know, him being difficult like that, and saying, no, no, I'm going to stop because what I really need to do to do this next bit of painting is to understand anatomy better. And then go off and do a bunch of anatomical sketches. So I said, I need to really get my head around optics to be able to paint this light. And then he's going to stop doing the painting while he goes off and does that and satisfies his curiosity. But that's really, really frustrating if you're used to an artist who's going to deliver um, to deadline. Rumours are circulating the court that you're in over your head. Some are taking bets. What kind of bets? That you'll never finish it. 
Still to come, we'll hear from executive producer and actor Freddie Highmore about emotions when confronted with Da Vinci's work as Leonardo pushed himself even further artistically. The Last Supper, showing Jesus Christ and his 12 apostles, was where da Vinci wanted to display a range of expressions or motions of the soul, as Leonardo described them. The placement of the apostles suggests their relationship to Christ, while their facial expressions convey their emotions. What emotions? As we see in the show, he was indeed one of the formative users of the vanishing point or linear perspective in art, along with a handful of predecessors, including Donatello. He used mathematics and perspective to create the illusion of depth on a flat surface for the Last Supper painting. And his depiction of Jesus at the centre of the table forms a perfect triangle from Christ's head to his outstretched arms. This is the vanishing point. The farthest place in the room in which Jesus and the apostles are seated. The walls in that room extend out from it. So when people enter and look up, it will seem as if this room continues into that one. As an image, it's certainly a striking one. But when viewed as part of a TV show, there are other senses you can play on, such as the music we hear to intensify what we experience. John Paisano is the one responsible for the music score on Leonardo. Hi, my name is John Paisano. I'm the composer for Leonardo. So it must be pretty daunting when you get a call that says, hey, John, I want you to score Leonardo. Yeah. <laughs> where, where do you start? And, and, and what stage were you brought onto this project? Yeah, I mean, I think I got brought onto it pretty early. It was my second project I've done with Lux Vid, who was one of the producers on this project. And I had done a show with them called Devils. So I kind of had a slight working relationship with them already. When we did Leonardo, I got brought in so early that I was able to kind of have the luxury of theme development. You know, when I sat down to do Leonardo's, you know, let's say, you know, we were doing we were trying to come up with a theme for Leonardo. We had a we had a theme that was called the working mind theme. I got to do, you know, before they even shot picture, I, I got to do maybe three or four different ideas of that theme and present them to, you know, our showrunners and producers. And they were able to kind of sit there and, you know, live with them for a little bit. And, you know, in a sense, you kind of have to fall in love with a theme, you know, and that takes time sometimes. Sometimes the first time you hear it, you go, eh, I don't know. And then you listen to it again. You go, oh, you know, I really, I love this one little section right here. And then you listen to it some more. And, you know, we have that relationship with a lot of songs. There's lots of songs when I was a kid growing up, I would hear a new song from an artist and go, yeah, I kind of like that. And then you listen to it over and over again. You just kind of fall in love with it, you know. And it's the same thing with with film scores. You know, it's it's very rare that you just write something right away and they go boom that's it perfect we love it and it's actually one of the frustrating things about being a film composer is you kind of have to present these ideas to filmmakers and it's very easy if they are in a shortened creative space to just throw something out where they don't really get a chance to live and fall in love with it and with Leonardo I was really fortunate to kind of have this process in place by being brought on so early to like be able to go through that traditional old school process of the way film scores used to be presented.
so what you're saying, John, is that you maybe had a script or an idea and you had to work with that, which is quite difficult because you're trying to visualise something that doesn't exist. And they're trying to put music to something that they haven't shot. It's nice sometimes not having that picture to influence you and you have to purely use your imagination. So whenever I do these projects, whether it's Leonardo or whether it's a Maze Runner or whether it's a Spider-Man, I always kind of start from this point of, okay, let's start with the story. And I, and I create a suite, you know, I usually create like anywhere between like a 10 to 15 minute long suite of music. And within that suite, I try to acknowledge different themes that I think are important. I, different palettes of sound, whether it's a, a, a group of instruments, instrumentation, different rhythms, different energies. And then I refine that more and I do variations on it. And I, I might add a part B to the theme that he liked and see if he likes that. And like, you know, you kind of go through this. Pro- and granted, remember, this is all before I get picture. And so the hope is by the time I get picture, then it's more about just taking all of these different elements and taking all these different ideas and refining them to picture and sculpting them and making sure that we get a little hint of, you know, character A's theme during this part and it's like blueprinting and planning out how the score is going to function within the film so like the last thing i want to do is get into the middle of the film and go oh i better come up with my theme for this character because i feel like there's so much time needs to be spent shaping the themes that you want to have all those things i feel secured before you even get into writing for picture Let's talk about the themes. So obviously you created these themes. We talked a bit about Leonardo. Did you have other themes for other characters? Yeah, yeah. We had Katarina's theme. It's interesting. When you when you go and do a very theme, like the, the score is very thematic. There's, there's very specific themes for, for specific characters. There's a place you can get to when you're doing a thematic score where you can have too many themes. And then everything just sounds like random pieces of music <laughs> throughout the picture. I call it themeitis. You know what I mean? Like you, you start making, you start making a theme for everything. Oh, we want a theme for this character. And we want a theme for that character. And we want a theme for when they, you know, get to this place. And we want another theme when you get this. And then at a certain point you go, well, no one's going to resonate with any of these themes because there's so many of them. You know, it's hard to kind of figure out if something's thematic again, you know? So um, you want themes for everything because there's a lot of obvious themes, but at the same time too, you kind of have to know how to gas and clutch the theme creation because it can have diminishing returns if you have too many of them. Now, John, as a composer, you have a skill in that you can change the viewer's emotions in one split second. And how did you go about doing that in this picture? Yeah, I mean, the great thing about working with Dan and Frank on it was that they're so story driven. And as a composer, you love that because I think you always want to score the subtext of what's going on versus what we're seeing on screen. You know, I think it just makes for a deeper implementation of score. You know, sometimes it's really easy just to score exactly what you're just seeing on screen. And it's easy to lose focus on, especially with the technology. It's so easy for us as composers just to throw up a scene, have it right in front of you. You know, right, okay, I want to hit this point, this point, and this point, and you just kind of, you know, formulaically go through uh, the writing process and just like you, you really, the score sometimes can end up being more functional, just more functional and less emotional and kind of 
thinking about the deeper meaning behind what you're scoring, you know, when you're just scoring straight to picture like that. And I think working with Dan and with Frank, they're so in tune, obviously, because I wrote it with the story that a lot of times we would talk about cues and it wouldn't even be about what we were seeing on picture. It was just more about the meaning of what we're trying to accomplish with this piece of music in this scene. And sometimes they had nothing to do with what you were seeing on picture. It was more about what's going on internally with some of these characters. And I think uh, it was just a great way of kind of going, you know, I, 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 I do this a lot. I'll start scoring a scene. I'll have a conversation like that with Dan or Frank and I'll start scoring a scene. And sometimes I'll just kind of put some general markers in and then I'll just turn picture off and I'll just kind of write purely from what we were talking about. And then I'll get to a certain point and I'll turn the picture back on and check it against picture, make some more notes, turn picture off again, write again, you know, and turn it back on. I try to divorce myself. And it sounds counterproductive as a film composer to turn off the picture when you're scoring it. But I, I do sometimes feel like it's so easy to let that picture almost influence you and steer you sometimes into some directions that can be too obvious. And I feel like it shakes things up a little bit when you kind of turn that picture off and you're writing purely more from a conversation or, you know, trying to grab some of the deeper meanings of what you're trying to accomplish with the score. on the music of that time because obviously Leonardo was alive at a time where music was you know just you know if you were in the right places in the right circles it was very important and um, and you know you hear Renaissance theme music Baroque and all those different times you're like oh that's that time so you're working with a period where people would recognise the music so you know how did you balance that out with creating something new you know this is a very much a period piece um it obviously takes place in the in the Renaissance, and like you said, music was, you know, a very integral part of life back then, especially in that part of the world. It was almost religious in many respects, you know, and it, it had a lot of weight to it, um, and it's very recognizable too, you know, that kind of that style of music is very recognizable, and it's got a very very specific sound to it. They didn't want to make the show feel too stuffy, you know, and I feel like if we went straight period with it, it had that tendency to kind of make it feel stuffy. And also, too, it, it can make it feel small, you know, so they wanted to they wanted the show to feel very cinematic. They wanted it to feel very emotional. So they didn't want to they didn't want to steer me too much in the direction of making it two period but at the same time too i think we kind of had to tip our hat to it a little bit too we couldn't just completely ignore it as well there was definitely some moments of intensity especially when you know these masterpieces of leonardo are revealed i mean mm -hmm. you you know even you would be like okay we've got to make a moment of this you know yeah. as a viewer you're watching it thinking this is the first time this has been painted you know right. in in depth in this picture so you know what did you think like you know this scene with the last supper is quite poignant because it's the first time Giraldi stands before the work and you know there's massive crescendo yeah. and you know you're, he's he's crying and you know you're like oh my goodness and you you look at the painting and it's almost like yeah this music's taking me there and I'm looking up what do you think when you create those moments yeah, I mean, you want to kind of, I think well, it's always different. You know, first of all, it's never just my interpretation of it. You know what I mean? I think that's the, that's the thing with film scoring. It really is a true collaboration. 
even though I'm actually, you know, putting the notes to paper and developing the, the physical music, the influence of the music is definitely a collaboration. You know, I'm getting a lot of input from directors, from producers, from showrunners, from executives. You know, everybody kind of has their ideas of what they want the score to be. And I think it's the job of the film composer to kind of take all those ideas and it's about making sure you're giving everybody kind of what they want. And then there's always about what you want too, you know, there's always about what I want for the scene, what I think is correct for the scene, you know? So because you, it's interesting, like sometimes the best advice you get is from people that aren't, that are from the audience, you know, from, from somebody that's watching it for the first time um, and says like, you know, wow, this is such a big moment. It's the first time we're seeing some of these, like you were saying, some of these big masterpieces and sometimes the executives and the filmmakers and people, they aren't even thinking like that. You know, they're thinking so much. They're thinking on a much different, you know, something they've been living with these projects for, you know, a whole year. And they have this kind of built up idea of what they want. And sometimes the simple answer is just is something as simple as being like, this is the first time we're seeing this painting being created, you know. And it's like sometimes that's the most honest, you know, way to interpret the scene. But it's 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 just a very interesting process to kind of when you get into the psychology behind all of the, the creation of some of this stuff. With this score, how did you want me to feel watching, you know, Leonardo? What did you want to get from it? He's like a, an extremely unique individual because he was an artist, but he was also, you know, an architect. He was also an inventor. You know, he was he truly was a renaissance man in the sense that he just did so much. You know, I mean, I'm surprised he also wasn't who knows, maybe he was an amazing musician. You know what I mean? Like he just <laughs> I felt like he just did it all. So I think there was this kind of wondrous, mysterious he would, he, and I, I still view Leonardo da Vinci as a very mysterious figure. You know, he almost seemed like he was from another planet in a way. He was just so ahead of the time, his inventions, his drawings, his understanding of the human body. But at the same time, too, he also had this very, for as technical as he was, he also had this very artistic and emotional side to him as well. And I think it was kind of trying to marry those two worlds and kind of make them accessible to the audience. We have very technical music in Leonardo, but then we also have very emotional and very lush music in, in Leonardo. And I think he kind of encapsulated that world, you know? I mean, he, he definitely had a couple different sides to him. And then of course we have this whole other story going on that kind of involves all these other cast of characters that we kind of had to acknowledge as well. But I think at the crux of it, I think he was somewhat of a tortured individual. I think he was very misunderstood and I think he was feared in that sense. I think people, when people don't understand stuff, they fear it, you know, in a way. I think it's just human nature. And I think he was definitely a victim of that kind of thinking. I think the music was very focused on him, but I think there was also an element of sadness and torture to it as well. A dramatic ending for now. While that murder mystery of Catalina de Cremona is a plot device created for the show, the characters surrounding it are definitely real, as was the explosive nature of Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan. And you think I don't know that? You trespass on my grief! 
In an earlier episode, we spoke at length with Freddie Highmore about the various portrayals of masculinity we get in this drama. And wait till you see who's on the way in episode six. But as for Schwarza, played by James Darcy... I feel like James Darcy is is brilliant and, and always grounded in the show as Forza, but at the same time, there is a humour to seeing him. I am Freddie Highmore. I get to play Stefano Giraldi. I'm also uh, an executive producer on the show. There's a performative quality to him and a performative quality about him that's also like very performatively male, um, which which is always entertaining, I feel. He's, he's brilliant in the show. We worked very hard to capture every detail. I don't want reality! I want myths and legends! You think any of us have any power on this earth? Power on earth is fleeting. I expected you to reach up and grasp the heavens for me. Did you know much about Leonardo's paintings beforehand? No. Um, I've been lucky enough to go to the Louvre and see the Mona Lisa, which there's just so many people and you can't quite see it. And you have this image. You, It was kind of great to have not the real thing, but like a version on set that you could actually look and like study in slightly closer detail because it's not a disappointing artwork in of course it isn't but somehow the experience is different when you're whizzed through and you can't actually see it and you're behind someone's shoulder and then you're whizzed along because your time is up that's exactly how I felt when I went to the Louvre to see it I sort of hyped myself up and then I there was just like so many people so it's quite small anyway but then because there were so many people in front of me it just looked like a tiny dot in the distance. But the one thing was remarkable filming in Italy when I got to set, which was right when things were reopening again, um, was getting to go around the Vatican in its newly opened form, which was incredibly, like, empty comparatively. Do you regret painting The Last Supper? I regret the sacrifices that demand. But not the fresco itself. It's only a short walk from here. You tell me how I should answer the question. And we see Giraldi's emotional response to The Last Supper painting. That was quite an intense moment. That was the first thing we shot, actually. That was the, was was the first thing I shot. Yeah, it was like magical to step onto this set and this space and think, wow, that is The Last Supper. And, uh, and, and see, at least in your head in that moment, that you're genuinely standing in front of it. And that's what I love about the show too, is you get to see the the kind of making of these famous paintings that and and I don't think, especially with the you know technology and not just technology in a kind of internet sense, but just all of the advances that humanity I guess have have made, how difficult it was back then to even get the right paint to be mixed together and at the right time and find all of those different things that that we get to explore in this show it makes those achievements even even greater because they're even more hardly fought for. I think it was really great that you wanted to show the authenticity of the process as well because I didn't know exactly how art in the Renaissance time was, was achieved like that. And for me to sit and think, oh my gosh, you know, it wasn't something they did 
you know, over a couple of weeks. Sometimes it was years, you know, like we see. Yeah. And, and I think this goes to him as a person, but his perfectionism, the constantly starting again, and with the Mona Lisa, the amount of time that he tweaked it and tweaked it and wasn't satisfied by it. And, and there's this lovely moment that with the Last Supper that goes to show his, his perfectionism, I think, that he stands there and there's this error that he sees there that no one else has seen. And everyone's like, no one will notice that. And he's like, but I will notice! It will torture me every time I look at it. Now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it. And I felt like that just so beautifully defined kind of who he was, that there is something about people who I think are true geniuses, that they, that even if no one else can see what they're changing and tweaking, somehow that is the essence that will end up making something so memorable and, and special. But also it's such a lonely pursuit, you know? It's like only he can see it and only he can... He's kind of alone. And it's like, this does matter because it matters to me, but does it end? <laughs> Who knows if it does matter to anyone else, but you've got to believe that it does in order to carry on. So none of you notice? No? Nobody? None of you care? One theme that does come up is betrayal, and it's woven into the story in episode five with The Last Supper. Amen, amen, I say to you, one of you shall betray me. What is it about the emotions in that episode that resonated as well for you? It's always horrible to experience, I guess, betrayal, but it's wonderful to watch. <laughs> Tommaso, I understand you're upset, but listen to you me. You speak of betrayal when it's you who's the betrayer. You're the Judas. I guess it's all about trust, really, isn't it? And, and I think that is a large part of this journey for Leonardo. The more that you trust someone, the more you stand to gain, but also the more you stand to lose if they end up betraying you. And I think having been betrayed at many points in his life, when we meet him with Stefano in the, in, in the interrogation scenes, he is very shut down and has tried to protect himself by, by doing that. But I think over the course of the show, he realizes that, that if you only retreat, of course you might not be betrayed, but you won't get anyone to actually help you either. Yeah, it's interesting because you never really know if Leonardo is going to trust Stefano. Yeah. And um, what is it, do you think, that allows him to break down slightly? Because obviously he still has his barriers up, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. did, what was it that Stefano did to allow him to, or to penetrate him or his emotions, that sort of, that wall? It's probably that he has to prove, it's the proving to Leonardo that he is more interested in, in the truth and in understanding what genuinely happened than being there out of a sense of just trying to get something for himself. And, and we know that those are the pressures for Stefano in the show. We know that his promotion rides on it, that his job, you know, sort of requires him to get this confession from Leonardo. Did you confess? To my sins, not to murder. But when it reaches that moment, I guess the question becomes, will he... Will he act just to serve himself and his own act in his own self-interest, or will he do something for the greater good? And I think that's probably the moment at which the kind of crux for the two of them of that moment of trust.
We are hurtling towards more drama for Leonardo as we move on to episode six and the introduction of two key characters in Da Vinci's life for very different reasons. Next time, we'll meet the Italian actress tasked with playing Lisa del Giocondo, better known as the Mona Lisa. I stressed out about it so much. He couldn't draw it and he couldn't paint it and I, I certainly can't do it. So I was just stressing out about it so much. And tensions are rising further as Cesare Borgia enters the Renaissance scene. He wouldn't see himself as a villain. He'd see himself as someone who's trying to resurrect the glory of the Roman Empire. This podcast was created by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative in association with Lux Fidei. Produced by Natalie Jameson and James Deacon. Edited by Chris Attaway. Sound mix by Mark Pittam. And production support from Barney Lee. Mm-hmm.